For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Uh, before we pray, and we will pray in just a moment here, I want to say a few things. Uh, one, we read a book this morning about heaven because for the next three weeks we're talking about heaven. We're starting a series called Desiring Heaven, and so we're really excited about that. One of the things that I love to do whenever we start a new series uh, is to give you some resources to help encourage what we're learning and, and being taught from God's Word on Sunday morning. And I want to give you two very, very different books. Uh, the first is a book called Heaven. Uh, by Randy Alcorn. It's big and thick and, and really, really good. Uh, it's a recent book. The other book is not so recent. It's called The Saints Everlasting Rest by Richard Baxter, who wrote it in the, the 17th century. Both of these books do the exact same thing. That is, they, they stir our hearts and our affections for heaven. So if you're looking for resources, you can have these copies. I still need to preach a series on heaven, uh, but, but you should pick these up yourself and, and read them. They're fantastic. Again, two very different books, but both doing the same thing. With that, would you join me uh, in prayer? So Father, we ask now that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, prepare our hearts. That you would cause us to take our eyes off of the things right in front of us, the stuff and the anxieties, the worries and the fears, even the joys of this earth. And would you cause us to look to you and to our eternal home with you? And we pray against the work of the enemy, Satan and his forces, who would cause us to only live here and now, only live with the material, only live without what we can touch and see and hear and smell and taste. Father, create in us an appetite for that which we cannot touch, that which we cannot see, that which we cannot taste. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I was to ask you what your greatest desire, your greatest love is, what would you say? What would you say? Maybe more revealing, if I was granted an all-access pass, to your financial statements, to your, your, your credit card? What would your credit card tell me about what you love, about what you desire? What if I asked someone close to you, your, your spouse, your best friend, your child, your niece, your, your nephew, your employer, what would they tell me about what you desire, about what you love? The Bible, you might be surprised to learn, yes, cares about what we do, our actions, but also, again, this might be surprising to you, cares about our attitudes, the things we love, what we desire. And what if I told you that one of the greatest desires, a desire that has always sustained God's people from Abraham to Jesus to Paul has largely been forgotten, ignored, or neglected. And you know what it is. We've talked about it already. We're talking about the desire for heaven. If you believe what the author of Hebrews says, and I do, 
than the thing that sustained and kept and motivated uh, Moses and Sarah, Abel and Abraham, the who's who of God's people throughout the ages, was that they desired, it says, a better country that is a heavenly one. A heavenly one. The singular goal of the next three weeks is both uh, embarrassingly simple, but I think also extremely profound. That we as a church would recapture a desire for our heavenly citizenship. That's our goal. And if you are here and you don't know Jesus, that you would for the first time come to both know and love the destination you were always created for. So maybe you're new. Maybe you're new and you're new to Jesus, you're new to the church, you're new to all of this stuff, and you're thinking this morning there's nothing more impractical than sitting around and talking about heaven, a far off place, a fairy tale to you. But here's what I want to say. Actually, here's what the late author C.S. Lewis wants to say to you. He writes this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, I want you to just hold that for a second. What desires do you have that nothing in this world can satisfy? Just this past week, the list of the best 100 restaurants in Canada was released. And I like food. I like food a lot. That's what my bank statement says about me, by the way. And I discovered that, that Maisie and I, my wife and I, had actually been to, to the best restaurant in Canada. We, we've been there. We've eaten there. And guess what? We left hungry. <laughs> if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. What frustrated or insatiable desires do you have this morning? The next three weeks is for all of us, Christian or not, with frustrated desires. And if that's you, as is so often me, we need to have our desires changed. To do that, we're going to see three things this morning to start. The first is this, heaven remembered, heaven remembered, heaven forgotten, and then heaven desired. Heaven remembered, heaven forgotten, and heaven desired. I want to begin with a premise, a belief, a, a presupposition, if you will, that we cannot desire heaven unless we, one, know what heaven is, and two, know how good heaven is. So to ensure that our knowledge of heaven and its goodness is firmly intact, I want to counter three lies. There's more. We just have time for three this morning. Three lies we commonly believe about heaven. And the first lie is this. It'll be on the screen. Heaven is only spiritual. Heaven is only spiritual. The first lie we encounter most readily about heaven is that heaven is not a physical or material place. That heaven exists on a disembodied spiritual plane where you and I as spirits will float on and in between clouds in this never-ending church service. Right? 
It's the Philadelphia cream cheese picture of heaven. It's disembodied. And it's the view of heaven I had for the first 15 years of my life. If your neighbor doesn't know Jesus and they believe in heaven, it's likely the view of heaven that they have. It's the view our culture has about heaven, disembodied, non-physical. But all over the Bible, and I mean all over the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we find this truth. Again, it will be on the screen. Heaven is a physical place inhabited by people with physical bodies engaging in physical acts. It's a physical place with physical bodies engaging in, you guessed it, physical acts. Notice, look at Hebrews 11 with me. Hebrews 11 is a reading that finds its broader context commending all the saints who had all lived by faith. Notice, though, that what they desired, what they longed for, is described using the language of physicality. In our text, we read that the author of Hebrews says they were desiring a homeland. Now, quite literally, that word homeland refers to a place where you and I simply feel at home. Imagine that for a moment. Where where do you feel at home? For some of you, it's on the North Shore Mountains, walking through the forest. For others of you, it's a a family cabin out in the woods. Still others of us, it's a corner of our home at 6 a.m. that's quiet with a hot cup of coffee. Where, Where do you feel at home? The author of Hebrews says that we're desiring a homeland. The saints desired a place where they felt at home. Their desire is for a better country, a heavenly one. Heavenly, unlike what we think at first, does not mean spiritual or ethereal or abstract or non-physical. No, 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 no. We must get this out of our heads. He is saying they, those saints, and we desired a more real city. Well, how can a city be more real? Earlier in Hebrews, the author there says that we're longing for a city whose foundations were laid by God himself. I don't know if you've seen these advertisements as you've driven on maybe, you know, First Ave or over into Brentwood there, but they're advertising what? Master plan communities, right? What do they mean by master plan communities? Well, they have a Whole Foods, right? A bank and a liquor store, master plan. And all the things you could possibly ever need. These master plan communities. They're advertising for them. I wish they knew, I wish we knew that there is coming a master plan community. A community whose foundations were laid by God himself. Organized and arranged by God himself. At the center of which is God himself. A physical city. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. John sees in his vision, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw what? The holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen. In the past, 
God did not create Adam and Eve as immaterial spirits to inhabit an immaterial world. Today, God has created all of us, body and soul, to live as embodied people in a physical world. So, in the future, at Christ's return, when he brings heaven to earth, we will live in a physical place as physical people. It's always been God's plan. Spoiler alert, if you're tracking with us in our series in 1 Corinthians, when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul will say, oh yeah, and by the way, when Christ returns, we'll get a new body. A new body just like his. The kind that, that, that Jesus currently has. Paul writes this. It says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. This is our physical bodies now. Some of us say amen. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now we hear spiritual and think what? Ghosts. Clouds. Immaterial. But spiritual here, and the spiritual body to which Paul refers, is simply a body suited for life in the spirit. A body without decay, with limbs that do not break, a mind free of dementia, immune systems that will not fail. That's negative, but positively, a mind and body able to stand in the fullness of God's presence and drink deeply. Think about this. We, we've seen the past couple of weeks, haven't we? That when people encounter God's glory... They just come undone. They, they can't handle it. Why? They physically can't handle it. We will be given bodies. Not only are free from decay and destruction and death, but able to enjoy in its fullness the presence of who God is and all of his goodness. In heaven, we will shed the husk of who we now are and put on the fullness of who we were always meant to be. The author of the book that Heath read for us this morning was, was Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, you might have heard her story before. Uh, Joni was a young woman when she was in a diving accident and became paralyzed. Still is paralyzed to this day. Lives her life in a wheelchair. It seems in my experience that it is people who take their bodies and health for granted who are most comfortable with thinking about heaven as immaterial and spiritual. But you know who longs for physical heaven? You know who longs for a new body? You know who longs to do physical acts? People suffering now. People paralyzed now. People on death's doorstep, which, by the way, will be all of you and me. These kind of people long for the physical redemption of our bodies. And Joni writes elsewhere, sorry, Johnny writes elsewhere, Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. 
I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Johnny, although a much better, brighter Johnny. Heaven is a physical place. This earth will be renewed. It is a place where God's people will dwell with physical bodies. And if we have physical bodies, we will do physical things. With his new body, Jesus did what? Walked. Talked. He listened. He taught people. He sat down. He ate food. With our new bodies, we will laugh and run and swim and dance and sing and even work. Lie number one is that heaven is an immaterial spiritual place. That's a lie. Lie number two is that heaven is boring. Maybe you're tempted to believe this. I'm tempted to believe this. And it follows, right? If heaven is an immaterial, only spiritual, eternal church service that lasts forever, even if the first few hours, maybe day, is interesting, the next three billion are going to be hard. Right? And here we need to be reminded of something. We talk about things being heavenly. That, that piece of cake was a little slice of heaven. Or that piece of land we just bought, a little slice of heaven out by the lake. This little slice of heaven. That's, that, that date was heavenly, we say. And so heaven has become for us a word that simply describes something good or pleasurable. And the problem with using heaven in this generic way, divorced from its meaning in the Bible, is that it opens the door for something to be good apart from God. For there to exist goodness and pleasure apart from whom God is, right? What do all the rock songs of the 80s and 90s say? Hell is where I want to go because hell is where fun is, right? Hell is where I get to do whatever I want. Isn't that the language that we sort of drunk of? There is no goodness apart from God. There is no pleasure apart from God. And the greatest good is God himself. See, we are tempted to think that heaven is boring, and this is true because we think God is boring. Or we're bored with God. We think God is boring because we think sin is exciting and that righteousness is dull. We think God is boring because we think that goodness and pleasure are our creations, our doing, and that God is a cosmic buzzkill. We think God is boring because, frankly, we don't know him. What's the truth? I'll put it up on the screen. Heaven is a place of fullness of joy in God's presence. A place of discovery and laughter. A place of deep satisfaction that we cannot begin to fathom. Third lie. Again, there are many more. We've got time for three. Heaven is about realizing our wildest dreams. We saw it in the book, didn't we? Ask any kid about heaven, and heaven involves a few things, right? Candy, lots of candy, right? There are no parents in heaven saying no to us, and we're playing video games all day long. 
Ask any kid about heaven into some sort of ordering of those three things. Now, I don't know, to be clear, if there will be candy or video games in heaven. I'm, I'm not the expert on those things. But, but I think that the child's response betrays a lie that is equally believed by us adults. And it's this. When I get to heaven, I will finally get what I want. That Jesus, my spiritual Santa, will finally deliver on the wish list I have for him. This is heaven as wish fulfillment. And just as a belief that heaven as boring betrays a lack of relationship with the living and good God, so too does heaven as wish fulfillment betray that our greatest desires are something other than God himself. Before we can desire heaven, we must ask, do you desire God? In the center of heaven is not a pile of Ferraris, or virgins, or homes, or vacations, or food, or... In the center of heaven is a throne. A throne on which God sits. And to whom all people and heavenly creatures love to sing, Revelation 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. To get heaven is to get God. So before we go any further, I should ask, I think it's wise for me to ask, do you actually want heaven? Do you actually want heaven? Because to get heaven is to get God. If we keep on reading in Revelation 21, we're told this. What's the good news of heaven? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We think, and I think this, I'm guilty of this, please, Christians and non-Christians alike, that if we just get what we desire, we will be happy. But it's never enough. Modern man Modern woman is an insatiable cup with no bottom. We have never been healthier. We have never been wealthier. And we have never been so unimpressed. So unsatisfied. And, Christian, listen. Christians have, instead of crucifying our worldly desires and desiring Christ... We have just pushed our worldly desires off onto another life. Heaven is when I will get that. We go through our life miserable, crossing our fingers that the payoff is coming. And we've missed it. You've missed the whole point. There is no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, because God himself will be with us. Our greatest desire now will be our greatest desire then. 
No, heaven is not a place of realizing our wildest dreams. The truth is, be on the screen, heaven is a place where our desires healed, we will receive and enjoy what we didn't know we needed. God, his glory, his presence, his goodness, he is who you are actually searching for when you max out that credit card. He is who you're actually searching for when you scroll through those profiles. It is he who you are searching for. It is he you are desiring. I love what, again, Richard Baxter writes in his little book. He says this. Christ brings the heart to heaven first and then the person. He that had truly rather have the enjoyment of God in Christ than anything in the world shall have it. And he that had rather have anything else shall not have this, except God change him. So we remember, heaven is a physical place where people with physical, imperishable bodies will receive their greatest joy, their deepest longing, a reunion with God himself. If this is heaven, you might ask, well, how could we possibly forget? Point number two, heaven forgotten. I want to take us back to Hebrews 11. If you have your Bibles, you can look there with me. But in Hebrews 11, we read this. In verse 13 of Hebrews 11, it says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There is a cost to desiring a heavenly city. A cost that is so significant, it becomes actually quite convenient for us to forget the heavenly city altogether. See, here's the logic of Hebrews. Here's the logic the author is employing. The faithful saints, from Abel to Abraham to Sarah, have always had one thing in common. They saw themselves as citizens of another country, another place, not this place. But receiving this promise and receiving that identity always comes at the cost of rejecting another identity. It comes at the cost of seeing ourselves as citizens of this world, this city. Which means, the logic goes, it comes at the cost of acknowledging or confessing ourselves to be strangers and exiles on the earth. See, some of us are trying so hard to have both cities, both worlds. Some of us have even baptized our straddling of two worlds in Christian language. We say things like this. Well, I don't want to be too different or too weird or too unlike my coworkers because then how can I reach them with the good news? How can I reach them with the gospel? So we buy the same cars, we live the same lifestyle, we laugh at the same jokes, we watch the same shows, and we indulge in the same sins. And we think we're being good missionaries. I want to read to you from an early Christian document called the Letter to Diognetius. And in this letter, we find one of the earliest biblical accounts 
extra-biblical accounts, rather, of what it means to follow Jesus in the second century and first century world. And listen to how Christians were described by this second century author. He writes this, Christians, well, they dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like all other men, and they beget children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They don't abort them. They have their meals in common, but not their wives. There's no sexual infidelity. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men, and they are persecuted by all. They are ignored, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are endued with life. They are in beggary, and yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things, and yet they abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are evil spoken of, and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and they respect. Doing good, they are punished as evildoers. Being punished, they rejoice, as if they were thereby quickened by life. This is what it means to be a Christian. There's no other Christianity to sign up for other than this one. Later in Hebrews, the author will say this, and I want us to linger here. For here we have no lasting city. I want to repeat that because I don't think we believe it. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. So why do we forget? We forget because we desire citizenship and belonging in this earthly city over and above our heavenly city. We forget also, not only because it's easier, more convenient, but because we're winning. Many of us are winning this morning. Let's be honest. This is a good time to be honest. If you are young and you are doing well this morning, you are more likely to ignore heaven. Life is, to you, up and to the right. So if that's you this morning, maybe you're, you're killing it right now, you're, you're doing great, or you're a young person, you're a youth in the room this morning right now, and you've ignored everything up until this point, listen, I want to say to you two things. Young person, youth, child in here, choose today not to be seduced by the pleasures and comforts of this world. Just before our reading in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, verse 10, we read, we read that it was while Abraham was in the land of promise that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, while Abraham is in the throes of blessing. Think about this. While Abraham was enjoying the good life, while Abraham was at his peak, yeah, yeah, he's not in the place he knew, but, but he's doing pretty well for himself. While he's at his peak, he was nonetheless in that place looking forward, desiring a better, more real city. So young person, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to act like a prophet for a second. In the coming years, you're going to get a job. It's going to be a good job. 
because you're smart and driven and talented. And it's got to come with some perks. There will be a company car. There will be an expense account to be used at fancy restaurants. You will buy a house with some land. And then because your neighbors are doing this, you will pick up a hobby. It's a good hobby. It's fun. It's a hobby that will require less time at church on Sunday and more time at the driving range. And you will say to yourself, surely I'm in the land of promise. Surely all the blessings of God are upon me. And the thing that killed your faith, the thing that stopped you looking forward, would not have been hardships or trials or tragedy, but the good things of this world that crowded out the things of heaven. And I've seen it happen, and you've seen it happen time and time and time again. Which, young person, leads me to the second thing I am desperate to say to you. You will die. Welcome to Christ City. You will die. You'll die. I'll say it again because I don't think we get it. You will die. Choose today to live in view of your own death. I know that you feel invincible today. I know that you can run so fast. That there's no problems with your heart. That your lungs are full of oxygen. But you will die. And whether my life or your life is cut tragically short or you die a pleasant death in your sleep at a ripe old age, should Jesus not return in our lifetime, it is promised to us, you will die. And Daniel's going to talk more about this next week. But the Bible tells us that our default destination is not heaven. If we think heaven is owed to us, you're wrong. Hell is our default destination. Hell, eternal separation and judgment apart from God is our default destination. That is, unless we who are saved by grace, by faith, desire the better country, spend our life and our energy and our time and our money laboring to that end. Let me quote Baxter again. He says this. I love it. Christianity is not a sedentary profession or employment. Christianity is not a sitting still job. Nor doth it consist in mere negatives. Not doing good is not the least evil. Let me say it again, it's a double negative. Not doing good is not the least evil. He says sitting still will lose you heaven as well as if you run from it. So the psalmist prays, and we pray with the psalmist. Teach us to realize the brevity of our life so that we may grow in wisdom. When we know we will die, we act in true wisdom. It is wise for you to spend your life as a stranger in exile on this earth. It is wise for you to give your money as if one day it will dissolve into nothing, because it will. It is wise for you to wake up in the morning and say to God, God, my life is brief. What would you have me do today? It is wise for you to be suspicious of the longings and desires of your heart, to not trust your inner voice. It is wise for you to do all these things because the other reason we forget heaven, young person and old person, is because we have an enemy who likes it that way. 
An enemy who wants us to believe that after we die, there is nothing waiting for us. An enemy who wants to convince us that God has forgotten us, and if he has remembered us, the place that he prepares for us will somehow be incomplete or missing or not whole in some way. We have an enemy who wants us to believe that our default destination, because we're good people, is not hell but heaven. An enemy, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, who has made it his work, his, his life mission to blind the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. I love how this is depicted in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. In the Screwtape Letters, we find this imaginary correspondence between a senior and a junior demon and what it might sound like. And, and Lewis imagines these, these two demons having this to say about heaven. He says, the truth is that the enemy, and they're talking about God, the truth is that the enemy, having oddly destined these mere animals to life in his own eternal world, has guarded them pretty effectively from the danger of feeling at home anywhere else. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. So disposed, or inveterate, it's disposed, so disposed is their appetite for heaven that our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth is to make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics or eugenics or science or psychology, or whatnot. You have heard it said, that man or that woman was so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. And I say to you that that saying comes from the mouth of the devil. It's demonic. It's not true. It is only those who live in light of the better eternal city who are of any value in this life. We need to end. Point three, desiring heaven. Heaven remembered, heaven forgotten. How do we desire heaven? How do we do this? How do we begin to long for what Abraham longed for? How do we ensure that, that even when things are going good, when, when we're tempted by the good things, that we still desire a better country? I, I imagine we'll spend our whole lives cultivating this desire. That we will die not, not longing enough for heaven, not desiring enough the realities and the truth of heaven. But here's where I think it starts. I think it starts with repentance. With, with, with turning from the way we've been living to walk anew in the way of Christ, to long as Christ did for his kingdom. And some of us, myself included, have built our entire lives, where we live, what we do, our relationships, our jobs. We, we've built these entire worlds without giving a thought to eternity, without giving a thought to heaven. And the Bible says that that's sin. I'd like to give you a gentler word for it, but the Bible says that that's sin. That that which does not proceed from faith is sin. 
It is sin because it's not done in faith that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom, to bring heaven to earth. The, the journey to desiring heaven begins this morning with repentance, with turning and believing, asking forgiveness. It begins with repentance because repentance is our first act of faith. From this kernel of faith, God is able to blossom a tree in our hearts that has faith to see that Jesus is our king. Faith to see that he died for us. Faith to see that it is, a, it is better that he left us so he could give us his Holy Spirit and prepare a place for us. Faith to preserve as exiles and strangers. Faith to live in a small apartment on a small salary in a hostile country, in a neighborhood we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. Faith to do all of this because God is not ashamed to be called our God. Our God who has prepared for us a city. I want to leave you with the words of Charles Spurgeon. He's a 19th century preacher and he said it better than I ever could. He says to come to thee, to come to God, is to come home from exile. It's to come out of the land, sorry, come to land out of the raging storm. To come to rest after long labor. To come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. Let's pray. So we do ask for forgiveness, Lord. We confess that we are a worldly people concerned with worldly things with very Christian-y sounding answers as to why that is the case. So forgive us. Forgive us, we pray. Purify us, your church, your bride, that we might live in view of heaven, that we might long for that place. And would that longing inform and shape our living now? And we do pray we do pray as we have already shouted this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And bring heaven with you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.